Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, the 20th of April, 420, none of that mess, but uh, 2021. Welcome, welcome, welcome to No Easy Answer, the wonderful, beautiful, amazing podcast where we dive into all sorts of topics and themes and ideas and discussions about everything under the sun. And now we can understand that from a better perspective, uh, as illustrated by the sacred scriptures. I am a person here talking to you. Um, Have I ever given you my name? I don't know if I have. I'm Cameron Carter. It's nice to meet you. And uh, it is a pleasure to talk with you today. In this podcast, if you've been following along, I've been talking about the topic of violence for a very long time. And man, I'm ready to move on to something else. But... I still got a lot to go through to give it the the, the different topics that it's due. Um, I've talked about kind of the origins of violence in the Bible, talking about the story of Cain and Abel, which is probably one of the most illustrative stories of violence out there, uh, and some of the factors that go into it. And then recently I've been diving into specific examples of violence, and that continues today. So two weeks ago, um, I started talking about gang violence. I've been kind of going through this as a semi-alphabetical order. And uh, I started talking about gang violence. And so today I want to talk about one gang in particular, and this is not even the most uh, numerous gang out there or the one that runs the most amount of money, but it probably is the most notorious. I'm talking about MS-13. And I want to use this just because it is such a well-known gang, these are the, the Maras, the Maras Abatrucha, and I feel like this is a really, uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's tragic on a human level in many, 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 many ways, and continues to be so on all fronts, both by people that are in the gang perpetrating all sorts of crimes, murders, rapes, tra- human trafficking, drugs, all that kind of evil, evil stuff that's going on there, and the the many victims of that, but also within the origin stories of of the gang as well, and that's what I want to go into today because I feel like that is so illustrative of how violence typically works, Um, and and this is kind of, I'm thinking there's some things we can pull out of here that's going to be important. Now, there's going to be a lot of stuff I'm going to say in here, and, and I don't know who you are that's listening to me now. There might be some stuff in here, and you're like, oh, yeah, there's whatever. There might be some stuff in here you're like, what? You nutcase. And so, again, I don't know who you are and I don't know what you know and what you don't know. All I know is my own personal uh, story. And and I know a lot of the stuff that I'm saying in here, if I listened to this when I was like 18 or 20 or even up to 22, I would have thought, this guy's a nut. Um, And really it took me getting outside of the United States to even be open to considering not even open to considering, but even being made aware of any of this kind of stuff. So, uh, and again, everything I'm going to say, and I'm not perfect in my research, but you can research it. You can look this stuff up. This is not something that I'm just making up out of nowhere. This is uh, well-known stuff. This is well-known, well-researched, and uh, publicly made information that is not really different from anything else. So, again, if I start saying things and you're like, what are you talking about? then consider this as kind of an entrance <laughs> into things. Nonetheless, I, I want to be clear, and I'll, I'll try to make this clear as I go into, that 
that a lot of this is is not to antagonize. It's not to throw blame. It's not to whatever. I'm, I'm going to try to, as best as I can, understand the motivations behind all involved parties. Uh, and I'm going to try to present that as it is. So take that as you will. Um, here we go. So the Justice Department uh, from the United States has a really detailed paper out about the, the MS-13, the Mara Sabatruja. And you can't even really get through the first two paragraphs of this thing without two major things coming up. Talking about the origins of, of this particular gang. And, and I think this, today we're only going to be talking about the origins. What's, what's the, what is the context out of the birth of Los Mara, Los Mara Salvatrucha. So one of the very first things that comes up is the name. Mara, Mara Salvatrucha. What does this mean? Um, and I'm probably going to completely space out what this is. But in some way they say Mara is a way to talk about a gang or, or in Spanish they say a pandilla. And so uh, they talked about how this particular gang really formed in late 70s, early 80s in Los Angeles in the Pico district. Um, and the original name was the Mara Salvatrucha Stoners. And there were a bunch of young kids that would get together and they would smoke pot and listen to heavy metal. And that's kind of what they did. But so they say, OK, well, where does the name of this group come from? And so they say the Mara comes from the pandillas. The Salvatrucha comes from a name given to, given to people from El Salvador back in the day when they were fighting off or part of a resistance against William Walker in the 1850s when he declared himself as president of Nicaragua. So that's the first thing we got to get into. The second thing we're going to get into, uh, and the 13 uh, comes from the fact that M is the 13th letter of the alphabet. Ta-da! So the, the Mara Salvatrucha stoners, um, oh, and sometimes it's Salvatrucha, uh, Salvador, and then Trucha means like someone that's smart or astute, you know, they got some street smarts to them. So there, there can be a few different ways to look at what that actually means. All that to say, all that to say, uh, the, the part of the Salvatrucha, we're going to have to get into that because that's going to be a whole different story. And William Walker, who is this guy? We're going to get into that whole story too. The second part that comes into it is that all the, the youth that were uh, part of the, the, the MSS, the Mar- Mara Salvatrucha stoners, they were all refugees and immigrants from Salvador that left El Salvador during the Civil War. So this brings up the question, what was the Civil War in El Salvador? And so now we got to get into that. So this episode is dedicated to those two things. What in the world, who in the world was William Walker, and also what was going on in the Civil War in uh, El Salvador. And again, I, I mentioned this last episode. The whole point of a lot of this, and, and I really reflected on how Jesus was crucified amongst two uh, criminals, that in the moment of his greatest suffering, in the moment of his victory, in the moment of his death, he was there identified in the middle of two criminals, uh, not amongst any other class of people on the face of the earth, but right there. And that can definitely be seen as a sense of shame, as a sense of rejection, and a sense of being cast out by society. Um, because that is what society does with criminals. We cast them out. And so we're going to go walk down this path. What happens when we cast criminals out? And we're going to see what happens here, how, how this whole thing tends to work. Some of that we'll see today. Some of that we'll see in the next episode.
But at the same time, we see Jesus there amongst them, choosing to be there amongst them. And there's a lot to that. So, 1850s, William Walker. And I had no idea about this story. I really had to dig into this, and that's probably why I took two two weeks to actually get into this podcast. William Walker. Interesting, interesting, interesting story. And again, you can look this up. It's well-documented, a little bit of history. William Walker was part of a group of people who were called the original filibusters. And the name filibuster actually applied to these guys. And it's not just like they were part of a group, but they were kind of a class of people um, who took the idea of manifest destiny. Sorry, I'm going back to your high school history books here. The idea that uh, back in the 1800s, the idea that, wow, God has given the United States this territory on the East Coast, and therefore he's giving us all the way straight west, all the way over. And so this uh, led to uh, the purchase of Louisiana Purchase, although I think Manifest Destiny really kind of took hold after that, and then a lot of that belonged to Spain slash Mexico, and then we had the Mexican-American War, uh, and so then that led to a lot of the acquisition of this territory going to the west, and then uh, the native peoples who lived there who said, uh, bro, we, we kind of live here. This is where we do. This is what we do. This is our place. This is our home. Uh, the removal of them and then the installation of the Americans in the rest of the West. So, um, that idea of manifest destiny is like, hey, this is, we're going to take all this because all this is, is ours, even though it already belonged to a lot of other people. got <laughs> a long list of who this all belonged to before it came into the hands of the Americans. Um, now, William Walker was part of this group of people, and he was thinking, hey, what if really coming out of the, the 49er group and not really being able to be part of this, he was a lawyer by trade, uh, he, he kind of took this whole idea of Manifest Destiny a little bit farther and said, what if, what if we took this not just west, but we took it south as well? And so his original intent to really kind of bring Americanism and colonies and installations and part of it to the forefront was by trying to set up a state of Sonora. Very similar in the way that there was a Republic of Texas, his goal was to set up a Republic of Sonora in the territory of Mexico. Problem being, it kind of already belonged to Mexico. But no matter, uh, <laughs> he was, uh, this was not a problem. And so he began to get a lot of people that were uh, disenfranchised, uh, with just life in general, and so he went down and he tried to set up this uh, this Republic of Sonora within the already existing uh, Republic of Mexico, and that did not go well. Uh, he was really not well received by the Mexican people. Uh, he showed up with a lot of people with arms, a lot of American guys, and they realized, uh-uh, this, this ain't going anywhere. So he really had a failed attempt to try to set up a state. did not work well. He had to try to get back across the border. Trying to get back across the border, the Mexican authorities were waiting for him. Apparently, somehow, they let him through. That part of the story is not very clear why they just decided, oh, okay, we'll let you go. And then on the other side of the border were the American authorities saying, uh-uh, no, you don't do this. <laughs> uh, we, we, we don't want you doing this. William Walker nonetheless, undeterred, decided, let's try it again, by gosh, because why not? 
Um, so even though it didn't work out, now he's really picking up the 49ers coming out of uh, San Francisco, who had not been part of the gold rush, but showed up hoping to get some gold, and they kind of showed up a little late. So he grabbed them and said, let's go down and let's try this again. So he grabs a bunch of guys. I can't remember the number exactly, but it wasn't a large number, but it was somewhere around 100 or so, 200, less than 500. And they decide to go down to Nicaragua. Now, you need to understand, this was in the time before the Panama Canal. So Nicaragua really was the major crossing point between the Atlantic and the Pacific, aside from going all the way down around the tip of Argentina and the Tierra de Fuego, going all the way down there and all the way back up, people would come in and they would do a portage across uh, Nicaragua. And they would have to basically get all the cargo off the ships and walk it across part of the land. Then they'd get on a boat that was in the middle of a lake in the middle of Nicaragua, and they'd take it through that lake as far as they could. Then they'd get it off, port it again, again, all the way over to the Caribbean or the Pacific, depending which way they're going. And then they get in the ship, and they would move on. Uh, Vanderbilt, remember that name? He kind of had the deal going on there. That was his show that was, that was moving and grooving. And so he had that thing. So there's already a significant American presence within Nicaragua. So William Walker shows up, and and he did not show up uninvited. Let's be clear here. There was already something going on. And, And the truth is, with violence, there's already always something going on. There's always some back history and some backstory. And even though I'm gonna try to limit these stories, the truth is you can always keep digging more to be like, well, what happened before this? And what happened before that? He hit me, but he looked at me, but he told me this, but he insinuated that. There's always something that happens before uh, the actual violence occurs, or there's a pre-active violence to the active violence in question. And you'll see that time and time and time again. Turns out Nicaragua was in a little bit of a civil war itself. Uh, and, and really, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in Central American history. I'm a lot more familiar with South American. Um, so I've had to learn a lot and a little bit of research for this. If anyone out there is listening and they have on the ground experience in Central America or they really have much more history, uh, knowledge of, of Central America, please, I would love it. Would you come on the podcast and share with us? That would be awesome. In any case... My brief understanding is that uh, Nicaragua, Central America, like, you know, from Costa Rica on up, um, Nicaragua, Salvador, Honduras, um, Guatemala, they didn't really have a, 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 a separation from Spain, which was the colonial power, as did many other countries. Whereas as, as in South America, we had this uh, figure of Simón Bolívar and others, uh, depending who you talk to, those others are more important than him. Um, but he's kind of deemed the liberator, although many people would not consider him that. Uh, he was one of the major driving figures, if not the main driving figure, between the liberation of Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, uh, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia from the Spanish rule. And there was big fights and everything to, to run that out. Central America, and same thing with, with, with Mexico, but now I've done even less about Mexican history, I'm sorry. Uh, I believe there was, there was efforts to, to free themselves from Spain. Central America was just kind of, yeah, Spain was pulling out, and they're like, all right, guys, you got it. Best of luck. So they didn't really have a whole lot of independence-type struggles. Uh, apparently, they just kind of started doing things on their own, and they, they figured it out. And because of that, and even within a lot of the 
South American uh, efforts at independence, immediately after they actually win their independence from Spain, their entry is in a very long period of a lot of civil conflicts, of different groups vying for power, trying to take over this, trying to take over that, and trying to determine who's who and, and whatnot, and it becomes a very ugly, ugly conflict that spans decades trying to determine who's actually going to hold power. And so it seems like Central America was also in the midst of that. There was, there was a, a tussle going on. There was two major groups kind of vying for power. And the one major group, which, or the main group that was not in power, but wanted to get power, saw this American coming down and said, why don't you come help us? <laughs> you want to set up your thing? Come help us. That'll be great. And Walker said, absolutely. So he gets the backing of one of these groups, and I can't remember if it was the more liberal or conservative or if these words even applied at that time and period. Um, but he, get, he gets the backing of one of these groups. He also gets the backing of uh, some competitors to Vanderbilt. And they're like, hey, tell you what, we'll throw in our, our part two, and if you take over, then you give us the control of this, uh, this crossing here between the Caribbean and the Pacific. So Walker says, you got it, everybody. And so he marches in into Granada, which is the, the current capital of Nicaragua, and is able, and, and Walker's not a handy military guy. He's, he's not. This is not a military strategic person. He was not very good at what he was doing. Uh, but somehow he managed to get in and, and take over. And the minute he walks into Granada, <laughs> much to the chagrin of the railroad group, he declares himself president of Nicaragua, 1850. There we go. So William Walker in the list of presidents of Nicaragua is right there. So you're not going to see, his name kind of sticks out a little bit if, if you can't tell. So he, he gets there and takes over. And uh, now everyone's like, wait a minute, what? So now all of a sudden his, his story begins to get published in the American newspapers. And there's a lot of people that come down to like, yeah, this sounds cool. Let's go down and support this. And a lot of people that went down there, they got there, they spent about two or three days, and they're like, I'm out of here. This is a mess. Because this guy, again, full of gumption, let's put it that way, um, not so hot in the leadership skills. Uh, obviously, he's able to lead something, but not maintain it. So he gets there, and all of a sudden, he's facing conflicts. And so now, the people of uh, Nicaragua are like, dude, okay not cool. And in a moment where the, the internal powers of the crowd were fighting against each other, they're both like, let's join together and take this guy out. In fact, they're like, let's get everybody together and take this guy out. Because now the concern is if this filibuster, this guy that comes down and tries to set these American colonies is successful at this, guess what's going to happen to the rest of us? All of us are going to get uh, taken over. Oh, and, and one of his things, uh, Mr. Walker, who was trying to gain support from Americans, right here before the Civil War, one of the first things he did is he ripped up the Nicaraguan Constitution, started again, really based on the Louisiana Constitution, which allowed slavery. And so he was trying to get support from the southern states by saying, hey, everybody, we, we can have slavery here. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily he was a supporter of slavery. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. He was just trying to get help. <coughs> Nonetheless, a little fact right there. Um, so all the native peoples are like, we, we got to do something. We, this, this ain't cool. And so Nicaragua bands together. They get support from, here's where we're going with this whole thing, from Honduras. They get support from Costa Rica. And they get support from Salvador. El Salvador. And so at this point, um, there becomes one general who shows up. And his name is Satako, with an X. Satacho. 
but it, it was kind of hard to say his name. And he was really from, I believe he was from Honduras, if I'm not mistaken. And that name is kind of stuck with some of the the uh, the, the Hondurans. But uh, the name, he since he came down, he was leading some, and this is kind of group effort between him and some folks from Costa Rica and El Salvador. That name is Sataco, which is kind of hard to say because it starts with an X and Satacho. I, I can't even say it that well. Um, they're they're like oh it's, it's, it somehow got merged into oh we have this the the Salvadorian so the Salva and Sataco Salva and became the Salva Trucha. Ah, so it became this idea of this resistance force from El Salvador, amongst other groups, that come and fight and resist uh, William Walker to kick out this American guy that just showed up out of nowhere and declared himself king over the country. Um, and so there's this united movement to remove this guy and get him out, get him out of our place. So we can have our own places going on. And they do that. Uh, Walker is forced to retreat in his process of retreating, which takes a little while. He burns Granada to the ground, completely destroys it, raises it, um, leaves nothing there. And as he's trying to get out, he ends up going through Honduras, and there he is killed. Uh, So now, much of South America, um, Nicaragua, Salvador, Honduras, Costa Rica, they remember this fight against William Walker. That's kind of like their Independence Day. This is like, this is what they're they're celebrating. Like, yeah, we kicked out this guy that just showed up out of nowhere and, and did this. And so this is this is how we really kind of made our, our stake in the sand. Um, even the, I think the guy's name is Marti, I want to say. That guy, um, I, I think I'm, I might be mixing some things here. But uh, I know I'm missing his name. But anyways, Jose Marti, that might be his name. His, um, his name is on the airport of Costa Rica because he's a Costa Rican guy that helped lead a lot of this resistance and he was kind of the head of the whole deal between him and Satakwa. And there's, there's a lot of different people that showed up and they're all part of this, this resistance against Walker. So, all that to say, <laughs> the Savatrucha, in, in the middle of their namings, uh, they, they pick up this name as part of their context from where they're from um, of this possibly, possibly one of the interpretations of their name comes this resistance group against an American invader coming in into their country or into a neighboring country. So, that's that's the story of William Walker and that is part of the story of the Salvatrucha. Now, do the Salvatrucha and their origins actually, you know, think this much through it and be like, yeah, we're going to remember the time that or it's just kind of like this name that they got handed down from the generations and they're just going to go with it. I don't know, to be 100% honest, I don't know. My guess is, you get enough people together, you're going to get one or two that's going to really know what's up, and the rest of them probably aren't, (laughs) but they're just going to be following in the general path that's going on. But, nonetheless, there is that little bit of history that's stuck there, and and that's going on to it. So, all that to say, um, there's that context. At least there's this idea of this context of, hey, where this is going from. And, and this paints the, the natural, this paints the national cultural identity of the country in and of itself, right? You know, as, as an American, it's like, hey, we want our liberty from the British. And so we kind of have this memory of like, yeah, somebody, some back, some way back in time and submitting and what kind of political ideology are, you'd be very penned to say somebody, but, um, 
you know, there's this idea that there were our forefathers that were able to resist against uh, British rule and gain independence with a certain set of values that they were fighting for. Um, and so that kind of paints our national identity. That's what gives us a, a sense of, of what the nation's identity is about. And so with El Salvador, that's part of, not entirely, and I would not say that all, and again, I've not been there. I've, I, I've known a few, I mean, probably less than a handful of, of Salvadorians, um, very amazing people that I have met, uh, that, that kind of paints part of their national identity. So, all that to say, that's kind of a bit of a backdrop there. Now, with that, now comes the question of why were these youth in Los Angeles in the first place. And for that, we've got to go back to the late 70s, early 80s, and this is something that's going to continue on through the 90s, about the uh, Salvadorian Civil War. And we will talk about that when I get back out of work. So hang tight. We're coming back to part two. All right, I'm back. It's not actually Tuesday anymore, it's Wednesday, because yesterday I got out of work and had to run an errand before a Bible study, and then I had to pick someone up at a Bible study, and then we had Bible study, and then I had to come home, and then my wife had a massive order of cookies. She's a baker, and so we were up till about 1.30 getting all those cookies out. All that to say, uh, oh, and then on the way back from the Bible study, my son was riding with me, some of the stuff we're going to talk about here is really not appropriate for a very curious five-year-old. Uh, so, and I'll come back to that point because that's pertinent here. Uh, so all I have to say, it's Wednesday. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> we're back. So, jumping right back in, talking about the Civil War in El Salvador. And again, I'm functioning on not much sleep right now, so my apologies up front for everything that's about to come out of my mouth. Lord have mercy. Okay, so, as we're talking about the Madas and, and uh, the context, how many were refugees from the, the Civil War in El Salvador. And now we're going to jump into that and say what was going on there that caused them, or many times their parents, uh, along with them, to come up to Los Angeles or these other places um, to avoid the Civil War. So, and as I mentioned earlier, we'll see how violence is going to lead to more violence, is going to lead to more violence, is going to lead to more violence. The seeds for the, and again, I'm not an expert in here, I've not lived in Central America, so again, if anyone wants to come on here and set the record straight, you're more than welcome to. I'd, I'd love to have a, another voice on here. From my brief research that I was able to, to glean into this, and again, this is all accessible information. None of this is hidden. None of this is like, oh, you're just making that up. No, this is all widely available information. So I, I would encourage you to do your own research. As we see in Cain and Abel, the, the root, the seedbed for violence is inequity. And the greater the inequity, the greater the likelihood of violence. You could almost... It, it's almost like saying violence is kind of this equalizer um, between inequity. Whenever there's a very large inequity, there's a much larger chance there's going to be violence there. It's almost kind of like a natural law. If two objects have more mass between them, 
there's going to be more of a chance that they're not going to be separate from each other. They're going to want to come together. If I have two objects with opposing electric charges on them, the greater the difference of that charge is, the greater the force of attraction between them. And the greater the desire to equalize that out. And to keep them from equalizing out, you have to apply more force to make sure that they don't actually come together and equalize each other out. And so it is, in this case, talking about a Salvador. There was great, but great, but a great inequity. Uh, and, and again, my apologies here because again, I'm probably going to mix all my my uh, all my information up. But essentially, and, and does it kind of go into a general overview of Latin history? Um, a lot of the feudalism from medieval Europe was when Christopher Columbus came and started setting up colonies in the New World, uh, started making his trips over. A lot of the feudalism really got exported out of Europe and brought into the New World. And that same type of, of idea where you have a large landowner and then you have many serfs below them, uh, that, that kind of came with a whole part of the package. And so really kind of from the get-go, there was this concept that really, the, and even internationally as well, the, the Americas were seen as very resource-heavy areas. Uh, specifically the southern latitudes of the Americas, not so much the northern latitudes. Northern latitudes, it's what you get up to like, you know, the, the New England, that area, it snows. You're not gonna be able to grow a whole lot of food. The ground's kind of rocky. You're not going to be able to produce a whole lot of stuff, and there's not like a whole lot of natural resources there. But in the Americas, you've got mineral resources. You've got gold. You've got silver. Uh, you've got um, biological wealth. There's a lot of things you can grow there that you can't grow in other places. You can grow coffee. You can grow bananas. You can grow tobacco. You can grow cotton. You can grow all these other types of things that can be grown there. And so really, the, the, the way that the the international trade got set up over, over the, the centuries was that the Americas were treated as a producer of raw natural goods. Whereas in the other countries, either in Europe or even in the United States, these places that are kind of far off, uh, these rich resource places, these were the places in which those raw natural goods were transformed into products that would be useful for something else. And so in those economies, those were value-added economies, while the Latin economy was just for the sale of the raw natural good. And as such, for the people that are doing value-added, all of those raw natural products needed to be produced at a low price. And so really there was an effort to try to keep prices low on the raw natural goods. And so many of the countries in Latin America where they produced all these natural goods, uh, which were abundant, there really was not much pressure to try to get them to add value to it. It's like, let's just put out a lot of it, and then we'll make some money on it, and then that'll be good. And so as such, you had people that, the more land they could own, the more they could make, the more they could produce out. And so, land became uh, held within the hands of a very small minority. A very small minority of, of a very small group of people that owned the land while everyone else worked the land for them to produce these natural goods, and so then they uh, would earn very little based on that, where the landowner would earn a significant amount 
uh, for just the quantity of scale for which they could operate from. This continued really unabated, and so we get an industrial revolution, all that kind of stuff going on, but, but the whole concept and, and the, the ownership of the land never really changed. That was always just kind of the, the same deal. And so in El Salvador, uh, I believe one of, the, one of the little factoids I read was that at some point in this whole conflict, if not the beginning or, or kind of towards the middle, there was 0.01% owned 40% of the land of the country. Now, this is not the 1% and the 99% that I talked about in the Occupy Wall Street movement. No, this is not the 1%. This is not even the 0.1%. No, this is the one-hundredth of 1%, one which, if you write that out as a decimal, is 0.00001. I think I got all the zeros in there. A very small amount. So we're talking, you know, one of every, what is that, 100,000 or 10,000 people owns 40% of the land of the country. And if you took it up to the 1%, it was like a 99% occupation of the land. Really, the, the general population had zero access to land, uh, zero access to actually having something that they could call their own, that they could live in and, and ha have something to produce in, if, it's, if we're talking about an agrarian society. That just was not there. Um, and as such, there was a greater and greater discontent with the reality of life. Life was difficult, things were not easy to come by, and it was the, the concentration of power is becoming greater and greater in, in the hands of these people that were a very small minority of the very tiny minority of the population, and yet they were getting richer while everyone else was just sliding backwards and not even getting enough to eat. And so this inequity, as great as it was, which is becoming even greater by the day, obviously is going to spawn violence. And again, I'm not going to excuse this, but I'm going to say the greater the inequity, there is a natural force, we'll say, that is going to try to bring about a greater sense of equality. That's going to happen. And the method by which that happens is violence. Now, I don't excuse it. I don't say it's good. I don't say that that's just, I'm not saying that's what we should do or anything of the sort. But I'm saying it's kind of like gravity. I, I can drop something on somebody's head. I'm still responsible for dropping it on somebody's head, but the force of gravity is still there. And the, and the force that's going to try to equalize inequity, that's going to be violence. And so it should not be a surprise, and it actually is not a surprise. You can study this statistically. In areas where there's greater inequity, there's greater violence. It follows. Um, again, the book Preventing Violence by James, Gilligan, I believe, talks about this, and he says, if you study neighborhoods where uh, everyone in the neighborhood is poor and, and all the surrounding neighborhoods are poor, there's not a great amount of violence. And if you go to the rich areas, there's not a great amount of violence. But if you put a poor area and a rich area right up next to each other, there's greater violence. Homicide rates go up, robbery rates go up, everything else goes up, just because you have the juxtaposition of the inequality right next to each other. Now, again, listen to me. I'm not saying, oh, wow, this guy's a communist. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the reality is when you have inequality, the force, the social force that works among humans to try to bring that inequality back to a more equal state is violence. If we understand that, then we can actually kind of start to understand it and we're going to begin to work with it. And that doesn't mean that we need to promote it by any sense of the imagination. 
no, I would not say that. But we can begin to understand the forces that many times control us and we're not even aware that they're operating on us. And now we can begin to seek the kingdom of God in midst of all that. And say, okay, Jesus, we know this is the reality. What do you want us to do in the midst of this? So, with all the stuff going down in, in El Salvador, the big inequality, obviously there was, there was issues, there was problems, there was, there was a seedbed for problems. And as such, uh, there began to be uh, uh, groups that were promoting a more equitable distribution of land. Now, uh, in this sense, this really would mean by some sort of sense, either political, which I, I think it began that way, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, to promote, let's do a land reform. Let's see if we can't redistribute the land in some uh, general way. Now, if, if, depending on what kind of background you're from, if you're redistribution, you're going to think socialist immediately. And, and that is what the ruling elite said immediately. Because obviously, whether they're socialist or not, whether they're capitalist or not, whether they believe in any of that, obviously what they had was under threat. And they were concerned that they were going to lose everything that they had or even a small portion of what they had. All of a sudden, this was in question whether they're going to be able to keep it or not. Um, and with that begins the concern that, oh, look, these are communists. These are people that are going to try to take out the bourgeoisie. They're going to try to bring in a more, quote, unquote, equitable way to do this. They're going to bring in a, a socialist government, and then everything's going to go down the hill, go down the tubes from there. One of the big factors in the middle of that was obviously the United States, who was in the middle of the Cold War with Russia, and Russia was the United States. And the United States, obviously, was resisting communism, not just in the United States, but across the world writ large. And so the Cold War was not an open war between Russia and the United States. Rather, it was a war, it was a literal war with bodies laid out, people killed, uh, as we're about to see, but it was fought in places that were not local to the two countries that were fighting. They were fought in third places. And El Salvador was one of those cases. So the United States, seeing that, hey, there's some issues here, they begin to start to move to try to see what can we do to, to ensure that communism will not spread here. Because Cuba had had one such revolution, Nicaragua had had one such revolution, and now the concern was that this is going to happen everywhere. Uh, and the United States had taken steps to prevent this in other countries as well. Chile in 1970 is one particular case. And you can look up what happened actually on September 11th, uh, 1970 in Chile. If you want to look that up with the, with the coup that General Pinochet pulled off. And many thousands of people were killed in the streets because of it. You can do that. You can look that up and see how the United States was directly involved with it. And again, you're going to be like, what are you talking about, brother? But I, I know. Look it up. <laughs> look it up. Uh, and again, I know some of you listening to it be like, well, that's justified. And sure, I guess if, if that's what you believe, that, that's fine. But again, that's, that's the way of the world. And, and if there is inequity, the only way to prevent the inequity from equalizing out is by equal force resisting the force of violence that wants to bring the equity about. And, and so the United States was, in the name of stopping communism, that resisting force to try to prevent uh, the inequity going there. Now, there were some movements on the part of the United States to try to prevent uh, or try to bring about a land reform, but again, the ruling elites of El Salvador wanted nothing to do with it. So... 
in the midst of all this, there begins to break out conflict. Uh, some of these revolutionary groups begin to form, um, and they begin to do attacks against the government, against the military, and the military responds heavily. Over the course of the, of the, of the war that lasted really from the early 1970s up into the late, or mid, early, I'm sorry, late 1970s to the late 1990s, I forgot how many people were killed over it. It was a lot. I know Guatemala went through a very similar history because it turns out a lot of the ruling families in El Salvador had relations in Guatemala. And so at one point when a land forum was even talked about, they grabbed all of their tractors and agricultural equipment. They shipped it out of the country, moved it to Guatemala, which was also going through a civil war. And I know in the Guatemalan civil war, over the course of 30 some odd years, if not 50 years, uh, it it was on the scale of 200,000 people that were killed in, in the course of the conflict that was actually recorded. Um, Salvador, I don't think it's that much, but again, Salvador is not quite as big of a country and it didn't last quite as long as, as Guatemala. So the, the conflict starts to break out. Um, and the, the great majority of, uh, and so as, as the rebel groups begin to attack the government, because they're trying to want to undo the elites, and at this point the government is completely supported by the elites, and they couch out to elites, and they're receiving support from the United States. Uh, the, the revolutionary groups are trying to see if they can have a, a more equitable society, land reforms, all this kind of stuff. And, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to paint them as, well, the Robin Hoods and the heroes of the story. But I'm saying that's what they're fighting for. And the reality is, anytime you fight for anything, uh, all your ideals and objectives will begin to decay. Uh, the reality in which you face is going to cause you to do things that you would not do otherwise. And that was the case there. Nonetheless, most studies say that of all the deaths, at least civilian deaths, that occurred during this conflict, 5% could be attributed to the rebel groups, whereas 95% could be attributed to the government. Um, so the government begins to respond in a scorched earth policy. Uh, anyone that is associated with um, or believed to be associated with the rebel groups were summarily killed and disposed of in public view. Uh, many cases, women were raped and then killed and then disposed of, and their bodies were left out in public view for everyone to see. It was a, an absolute terror campaign. Um, even even uh, a number of American Catholic missionaries were killed as part of these roving death squads, which was set up by the government. Um, obviously, the government said, no, that's not us, but it, that's, that's where you get the paramilitary groups, these groups that are definitely supported by the government, but uh, aren't officially government groups. And so that's a paramilitary. It's not the military, it's, it's a paramilitary. And so you had many paramilitary death squads were running around the country finding people that said, oh, you look like you support the rebels. Death. And they would just kill people. Um, they were also getting child soldiers. They were getting children that were 12 years old. They would go into high schools and take the kids and force them to go out and then kill someone else sometimes some people of their own family, of their own community, and then now that they're all messed up, now they're the ones that are set up in the military to go out and commit these atrocities against the general populace, which is feared to be part of this. Uh, 
even there's the case of Oscar Romero, who was a priest who was calling out the, the unethical use of violence by the government against the people, saying, listen, you guys need to stop doing this. This is not the way of Jesus. And as he was celebrating Mass, he was assassinated in the middle of holding up the Eucharist um, because of what he was saying. And, and you can look up some of Romero's stuff. There's a great little book that just has a lot of... He had a little radio program. You go out on the radio and say it. And you can read his stuff, and you can see... What he was saying really had, uh, was not promoting violence, was not promoting anything. He was calling on everyone to repent um, and, to, and to undo uh, the violence that was going on because people were dying, innocent people were dying left and right everywhere. My wife has seen a movie called um, Casas de Carton, Houses of Cardboard, which talks about this. And she thinks it came out in like 2006, 2007. She's like, that's, it's a good movie, but she can never go back and watch it again because it was, it was that hard. And basically it just tells the story of how many of the kids who were part growing up in El Salvador in this moment um, had to make the decision, which band are you going to side on? Are you going to side with the government? Are you going to side with the rebels? Or are you going to join a gang and try to be somewhere in the middle? And all the kids even, you know five, six, seven, they're already trying to pick what side they're going to be on when they grow up. I'm uh, trying to see what, what's better there. Um, and how, yeah, apparently it's, it's a very rough movie, but if, if, if you want to see it, you can look it up. It's called Casas de Carton, uh, Houses of Cardboard. But in any case, oof, um, this was the reality for many, 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 many years. And again, even uh, Americans were killed and assassinated in this. There was a case of uh, American nuns which were raped and tortured because of this. Um, a lot of the these death squads are going around. They were trained in an American military school called the School of the Americas in the Panamas, which was set up to try to stop the communists. Uh, but it just went far beyond just stopping communists. And now it was people that were doing this. The American government knew about all this, and, and at a point, they were giving $2 million a day to the Salvadorian government to do all this. And, and while there was public repudiation, like, you guys can't be killing priests, you guys can't be doing this, really, there were all the reports and the communications that come out afterwards says, keep at it, keep just keep killing them, just keep killing them. Um, and, and sadly, this is not the only case where this has happened. This has happened in many, 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 many countries, and I'm sure it continues to this day. Uh, this is not something that has really changed. It's just, this is how it works. And, and, and again, when I started learning about all this kind of stuff, it was such a shock to me because I grew up and I thought, man, the United States, we're, we're the heroes of the world. We're the ones that go out and do all the good stuff. And that's why everybody wants to come here. And, and as I started learning about this, I realized what we say to ourselves inside the country is very different than what we do outside the country. Uh, and and it's, it's no exchange that there's such an anti-American sentiment really against the government. Not, a lot of times it's not against the people, but against the government because the United States government has done a lot of very evil stuff. Um, we're not absent from that. And so I know many of you who will defend the United States government from here to there will be like, well, this is what we had to do to, to stop communism. That's fine. If, if, if that's what you say, if, if that's what you think, that that is the most important thing is to prevent everyone from becoming communist, if that's the be-all and end-all in life, then, then so be it. That's good. But if you're going to support the government just saying that and say, this is, this is what we had to do, then, then please do me a favor and stop calling yourself a Christian. Because if, if you do consider yourself to be a Christian, that means that you take on Jesus' yoke, not the yoke of the government. And that can be of any government. Uh... That means that you take on Jesus' yoke of saying, this is how he does things. This is what he is about. And so I'm going to 
choose the path of Jesus, whether that means that I'm going to be killed because the communists are going to kill me or I'm going to be killed because the Americans are going to kill me. Really, it's, it's the path of I'm going to choose love, I'm going to choose truth, I'm going to choose uh, the path of trying to look for peace as best I can with the understanding that I will suffer because of that. And to suffer with Christ is a blessing. Um, it's not choosing the kingdoms of the earth. It's not looking for their glory or their admiration or trying to uh, worship them, but worship only uh, our God and no one else. So, um, be that as it may, going back to what was going on there, uh, really, I mean, the, and there was a number of massacres on part of the government. El Mosote is one in particular you can look up uh, where just a whole village was just completely annihilated um, by government uh, death squads where they just showed up and decided to kill everyone. Um, Robert de Bausen, de Bausen, it's kind of a weird name to say, um, he was the one who was charged with uh, assassinating um, uh, Oscar Romero, the priest that was killed. And he was also trained at the U.S. School of the Americas in Panama. Um, and so he was part of this this group of people that were doing that. And he actually ran for president, didn't win. Uh, another group won. And then and so that was, that was going on there. Nonetheless, no, oh, and, and then many, so I, as a result of this conflict, many families caught in the crossfire were like, what in the world are we doing here? We got to get out. There's no way to get out. And so many tried to flee uh, the conflict, trying to get out of El Salvador because they knew if I'm just at the wrong place at the wrong time, someone's going to think I'm part of the rebels or someone's going to think I'm supporting the government and I'm just going to get killed. And so doing what anybody listening to this podcast would do, they chose to save their families, save their children, save themselves and get out of Dodge. Many of them tried to do it. A number of them were caught trying to uh, cross into Honduras and were assassinated in cold blood right there, mass graves, the whole thing. Uh, many didn't manage to make it out. And they managed to make it out, and some of them landed in Los Angeles. And so now you've got a group of kids that are, at the very least, at the very least, living under the roof of very traumatized parents who have managed to escape a horrible war, but I'm sure still have family that are still there, or all their family has been killed in front of their eyes, and they're trying to deal with that. Um, and they're trying to start a new life. Living in the same country that they know is behind many of the atrocities that they have suffered directly from. Uh, and so these kids are, no wonder, no surprise, without Jesus, choosing the way of, I'm just going to light up the next stick of marijuana and try to forget it all. Uh, and there it is. So, those kids, those kids... <laughs> And I don't excuse their decisions whatsoever. Be clear, I'm not excusing their decisions. Those are the ones that get together and they start hanging out, coming in from this context, and I figure out what we're going to do. And those are the ones that sit there and they're the ones that form the MSS, the Mara Salvatrucha Stoners. Again, as I mentioned in the first podcast, this idea of like, oh, these are the bad guys, let's get rid of them. That's what happened. Oh, those are the rebels. Those are the ones that want to come and take everything that's ours, even though we already own everything. Let's get rid of them. Uh, let's just undo them. Let's completely annihilate them and make sure that they don't ever come back. And they learn the lesson so they'll never raise their head again. Let's cast them out. And so with that, 
that has been the force that actually drove a whole slew of people into this country, the United States. And now we're going to see what happens on the next side of the story. So next week we're going to do part three, uh, talking a little more about the the Maras, what happens with them, um, and how this continued idea of trying to cast them out does not help. So have a great week. Be blessed. Uh, do well. And we'll see you all soon on the flip side.